And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Dr. Anoop Kumar, who is a mind-body strategist, emergency room physician, and he's had a near-death-like experience, which today we're going to learn about it. Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here with you. My audience loves to hear about near-death experiences. So if you don't mind, can we first start with yours? Sure. So I'll start by saying that I didn't know that this was called something like a near-death experience. And I was told later that this is called a near-death-like experience. So there's all kinds of varieties of experiences. But regardless, I can tell you what the experience was, which was um, I was sitting in my bedroom. This was towards the end of medical school, either my third or fourth year. And I was reading. And when reading, something caught my interest that I was reading. And kind of when I looked at that closely, when I said, hmm, what, what is this? What is this about? When that kind of attention went towards this, the experience was that of an explosion, right? Something like, I've never seen an explosion. I've never been in an explosion, but that's how I would describe it. Like a, like a bomb went off within me. And the result of this explosion was that the experience of um, the physical world fell away, including the physical body. And what was left was something like an orange blaze, right? It's like, it was like sitting in the, in the middle of the sun, but the sitting was without a body. It was just being in the sun, which is a strange thing to say, because obviously I've never been in or near the sun in that sense. Um, and yet just like describing it as an explosion, that seems to be the only phrase that that kind of comes close to what it is. So there I was. And now this sense of I that I'm saying there I was, that was different than the previous sense of I, right? The character or the guy that was reading the book um, a few moments ago. It was a different sense because the same room wasn't there. The same world wasn't there. The same body wasn't there. So you can imagine that the sense of identity is also different. And yet there I was, and there was some timeless period. Um, can't say how long that experience was. And during this timeless period, it was just an experience of, I would say, supreme peace. And I guess I would say, I'm hesitating to say joy, but it's it's kind of like, joy or just like, I guess you would say everything was really good, you know, like, and that's, that's the way it felt. And there was some timeless period. And then at some point it felt like, okay, it's time to keep moving on and whatever that meant. Right. And so this, this feeling was there, this momentum was there that was pushing me and pulling me and carrying me in a sense, uh, not with resistance. I wasn't kicking and screaming, but it just almost like if you, if you get into a raft in a river, 
you're just going with the flow, so to speak. So in the same sense, this sense of identity sitting in the sun, as it were, was after some timeless period, then kind of carried forth. And at this point, it was as if I was moving beyond the sun, like the sun were a kind of portal or a doorway and moving through that to whatever is beyond the great beyond. And as this happened, there was also the recognition that this was a one-way street, right? That in going through this aspect, there was no coming back, whatever that meant, you know, I'm, I'm verbalizing all this now, but you know, I'm, I'm doing my best. So whatever that meant, there was no, it, it was existentially clear that this was not a reversible, there's no undo function on this. Whereas the other part where it's just kind of being as the blaze, uh, it, that sense wasn't there, that it was irreversible kind of thing. So here I am being carried in a sense or kind of flowing towards this, whatever, this beyond. And in that existential awareness, there was, there was a hesitation that came up uh, for this, for the following reason. So as this was happening, this blaze was still there and another blaze or like, I don't know how to describe it. Like a part of this blaze um, kind of came forth as like an independent being, right? So there's this, you can imagine this overall just blaze, like all around nothing but orange blaze. And then it's almost like an aspect of that kind of comes forth. It doesn't look different. Doesn't, there's no clear outline, but there's just the sense that this is kind of an independent being of some kind and suggested um, kind of uh, non-verbally, but suggested to me, it kind of appeared in the mind that this next kind of step of going beyond the blaze um, into whatever's next, that this uh, would not be fair. Like taking this step wouldn't be, wouldn't be fair. And, you know, consider again was the kind of message. And it wasn't an, it was not an ultimatum. It wasn't an injunction. You know, there was no, it, it was more like information, like just say, okay, hold on. Like things are moving fast kind of thing. And just, just consider everything and, you know, just be clear that this is what you want kind of thing. That was the kind of feeling for me that came up. And when this, when I kind of received this, this caused the hesitation in that movement, in that flow. And that hesitation was all it took. Um, and with that hesitation, it's almost like everything re-imploded. Um, just as fast as the explosion happened, it all kind of re-imploded. And there I was again, sitting in the room on the chair, you know, everything appearing just as it had before. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the way the room was supposed to look, but things were quite different in many ways. So the way I was perceiving seemed to be different. Whereas before perceiving seemed to be from within the body. 
Um, now perception seemed to be happening in a, in a kind of 360 degree kind of way, like not as if looking from just within the head, for example. Um, the sense of identity had changed in that identity, again, same thing. It was not necessarily something localized or restricted to the body. Uh, the sense of what is real had changed that the reality of the physical world that created then the mental world was, was kind of broke, right? So the idea that the materialist view or what we all learn in our society, really across the world now in modern education, that matter is fundamental and mind is secondary to that, that matter creates mind, brain creates mind, you know, that kind of view, like just cracked, just was demolished um, to smithereens <laughs> in a way that felt like it could, it would never be put together again. Not that I couldn't appreciate the old views. You know, I, I can still see, I can still intellectually think about how I used to see the world. I can't, I can't see it that way, but I can intellectually understand how I can conceptualize how and why that kind of, you know, that was the ideas about perception that we teach and all those kinds of things. So the sense of what is real had changed to me, what I call consciousness um, is fundamental and not consciousness in, in the usual way we think about it, not, you know, Anoop's or Jeff's consciousness in particular, but that there are more fundamental um, non-individuated layers of consciousness. Uh, and that had been consistent with things that I'd been exploring before that and, and after that. So those were some of the immediate um, big changes. And I don't know exactly how much time had passed, like linear chronological time. I'm not sure. Um, and after that, I walked into, at some point, I'm not sure exactly when I remember walking into the bathroom and looking in the mirror and not recognizing the guy in the mirror and uh, just the, because the sense of identity had significantly shifted. And this guy also looked very relaxed, which I had not been right. So this like he, his face was just much calmer and just seemed quite fine. Whereas I had previously been like, you know, questioning a lot of things and, I was bored a lot and, you know, that kind of angst was there and that kind of thing didn't seem to be there. So it, it took a while to become reacquainted with like uh, the, the body and the personality structure. So those are some of the, the initial big changes. And then soon after that, within a couple of years, yeah, I think it was within a couple of years of that, or maybe a year, year or two, something like that. I started my training in emergency medicine, right? And so that, one of the things I'd say is like, in, when we talk about near-death-like experiences or mystical experiences or whatever we want to call it, um, to me, it's, it's not something that ended. Like it's still happening now, hmm. right? There was no, like maybe like a, a flashy moment. Um, you can, we can kind of say it begin, but like in some ways that was the least significant or at least dramatic part in a sense, because it's, it seems to be ongoing. And I think, I think that's an important aspect of it. Even when I 
when I go back, I, I don't remember actually many things because I, I put it out of my mind in a sense, even though there's, there's a certain sense of it that, that can't be forgotten maybe, but most of it, like I would have left out probably a lot in saying this, not necessarily intentionally, but because what's as intense as that was at that time, which it was, what seems much more intense is, is this what's happening now. And so there's some aspect of that that's ongoing that still has that kind of um, intensity um, in comparison to which like any kind of story, including the story I'm telling seems to be, you know, kind of like um, a little dimmer, right? Almost like if you were to hold a flashlight up next to the sun, if you hold a flashlight up in the dark, it's going to be, whoa, that's great. I can see and everything, but the closer you bring that flashlight to the sun, now I'm going to notice that kind of flashlight. So it's that ongoing relating that is important to me that the ongoing nature of, of this and it not being like an event necessarily that happened that began and ended. Um, And another big aspect is that led to a very intense 10 plus year period after that of what I would say, like relearning how to live. Uh, It was felt like a complete reorganization of thought of the way like a person thinks like I had been very dependent on the way I thought, right. That was like my identity. And that was in a sense taken, like the mind wasn't thinking in the same way, perceiving how we perceive you're used to kind of one perspective of perceiving, but it was perceiving in a different way. Um, and then, you know, if you think about how foundational thought and perception are, right. I mean, everything we talk about from science to philosophy, to art, all of this is, the foundation is perception and thought, and even before that identity, but we don't recognize that in society. We don't say, oh, identity is fundamental, and that's how we see all these things and do all these things. But that's ultimately what I found in my own inquiry is that identity really is fundamental, like where the sense of identity is situated, lodged, how malleable it is, how it can be used in different ways. This really shifts ways we perceive and how we think. And that was a, it was like, it was like going to real school for me for 10 plus years while doing, you know, the other stuff, emergency medicine training and all that. And that was a very difficult period because you have to learn to use the stories that people understand, right? Which is like, like right now I'm telling you a story and most people will understand what I'm saying because it's, I'm telling you a story in, in a kind of a shared language, even if the content might be different and some people think it's true, some people not. That aside, at least we can kind of understand each other. So that's a kind of storytelling. But when, when speaking from, let's say, a different way of thinking or a different way of perceiving or a different sense of identity, it can just sound strange or incredibly abstract. Something that's very intimate and tactile can sound very abstract, you know, because the, the assumptions and the anchor points for our storytelling are not the same. So you take that and put it in the context of, you know, training in emergency medicine and, and your personal life. And it was very challenging for 10 plus years. And it took that long to kind of 
settle in to kind of create the framework. That's where the three minds framework ultimately came from is to find a way to translate, you know, across different experiences and, and touch on philosophical and scientific and spiritual and all kinds of experiences and, and with one framework. So that's, and here I am now having kind of gone through that and still going through that. It's not, it hasn't ended, but still going through that and, trying to share the story in a way that may be insightful and makes sense. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And I want to go here first. You say that things are still happening. Can you expand on that? Like what is still happening to you? It doesn't feel like anything is happening to me, but just what I mean is that the kind of shift in the way of perceiving, the way of experiencing oneself, that is still ongoing. Right. So it, it's not that there's a noop and then there's something happening to him, but rather the very experience of a noop, the very experience of being a person um, and being a personality and, and sitting on a chair now and, and telling a story is it's a kind, it's a flavor of experience rather than that being what is happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, that's, that's the difference is the, the frame has broadened and, the sense of what I am has changed. And even the the sense of relationship of, like I said, perception and reality that has changed things feel and are seen perceptually as much more fluid. And um, it seems to be, there's much more both creativity and uncertainty um, in every moment, as opposed to kind of the belief that, there is this external, rigid, physical world out there, and these are the things. And you know that that seems to me a much more rigid view, and that seems to be a view that comes when the sense of identity is lodged in a particular way. So that's what I mean by it's ongoing. So do you feel like now you're a noob, you're a spiritual being and you're experiencing stuff like you can separate from yourself and you can see like, okay, now I'm experiencing the joy of doing this or, or now I'm experiencing some anxiety over this problem versus the way you used to be. I wouldn't say I can separate from myself. I would say that I've kind of associated with much more of what is here. Right. So I think in many people think of it as dissociation, right? Like I am not, I am not this body or I am not this, or I am not that. And I don't know, I think it can be seen that way, but the way I see it is more that, you know, that also is an expression of me, right? The body also is an expression of me. The personality is also an expression of me Mm -hmm. and there is much more. And this me, by the way, that I'm referring to is not just me. I'm just talking about the nature of things. I'm talking about everyone's nature you know, the nature of this room, the nature of this chair, there seems to be just more of a, a, an underlying reality. I don't like that phrase, but I don't, I don't have a better one. There's, there's more of, there's much more to what is here than just the physical structures and and the physical objects that we externalize and take as given. That's what I'm saying. And that much more is actually an aspect of us. And so to, to recognize that and identify with this is, to me, it's not separating. It's not dissociating. It's actually associating. It's actually connecting. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so we can connect in a much broader sense and at the same time also express 
through a body, through a personality, through a language. Now, you said earlier that the body creating the mind, that whole idea cracked for you. I think that's kind of what you said. Do you now believe that your body in this 3D realm is a manifestation of your consciousness? It's a representation of not just my consciousness, but it's a it's a representation of the collective consciousness and of the kind of non-individuated, undifferentiated consciousness. No different than you know a, a particular wave in the ocean is a representation of that ocean, right? right. A, a breeze is a representation of air, and air is air is not in one place. Air just kind of is, right? And in in relation to space, we would say air is everywhere. And its representation is this thing. So similarly, you know, Jeff and Anoop and even things like the bed and the ceiling and the sky, these are representations, localizing representations of a fundamentally non-local consciousness. Like a cosmic consciousness or a God-like consciousness. Everything is a representation of that. Yes. All right. I'm going to take you back to the beginning. Now, what do you think was the catalyst that started this? Were you under some kind of stress while you were reading and that popped you into this experience or was it what you were actually reading? I think there's so many ways to answer this. Maybe one way is to say that um, one was there was this kind of um, question about things, questioning these things for since I was in elementary school. I had kind of heard of these possibilities I'd been around people who had experienced any things like this. Um, I'd been told about some of the things that can happen. So that was always there. And then, you know, you go through school and what you hear is a very, you know, a very narrow kind of approach to figuring out what's going on, right? If you think about education as learning about what's going on in a very simple sense, it's an extremely narrow approach that, that first begins with separating the observer separating us from the world and then trains us to kind of forget about ourselves and focus externally on something in the world and then study that. And by studying that, get to know what's going on. And it kind of forgets that the lens through which we look, the assumptions from which we come are so fundamental in how we actually see and what we experience. So those things I had always been questioning and playing with, and I was never comfortable with the answer. So there was this sense of like boredom and restlessness that was there that you might think of as like gasoline for a fire, you know? And, um, and in this particular moment, I was reading philosophy and there was something about it that caught my interest. Um, I, I think for me personally, it would be philosophy because that was I was always interested in that, but I think for anybody else, it doesn't have to be. It can simply be something that causes your attention to kind of focus. You know, it's almost like a magnifying glass. If you have, if you have something that can catch fire and you get a magnifying glass, it's the focusing of the rays that creates enough intensity in one spot for the fire to burst forth. And so that's my interpretation is that it was just coincidence that that was just you know, it's like sometimes we're driving and I see these signs about forest fires and it says today is a high risk day for a fire, right? It's very arid conditions, for example. So that was, it just happened to be very arid conditions that at that moment, just with all that had happened and 
you know, this is kind of one take on it I'm giving, but then with that focused intensity, everything just kind of went off. If you don't mind, can you give us a little bit about your background? You're Indian or Indian American. Are you Hindu? Are you Christian? Are you spiritual? Well, whatever. And does your background kind of play into your experience? Yeah. So I was raised in a Hindu family. So I'm Hindu. And to me, that that means that I value the the sayings in like Bhagavad Gita or in the Vedas, and I see I see their value, and that is like interpreting them has helped me on my own journey. That's to me what it means to be Hindu. I also think that those interpretations are ultimately universal. That um, if you look at people, not religions per se, but the people that started religions or the people behind them, I think that many of them in the depths of their experience, there's always been this kind of, whether we want to call it spiritual or mystical or experiential dimension to what we're talking about, not just, you know, follow this and do this and believe this, but experiment and experience. Uh, that's really the, the core of it to me. And especially the core of Hinduism, the core tenets are in the Upanishads, which are profound philosophical texts that by themselves don't really talk about God. What they talk about are truth and reality mm. and commentaries on that are really about how to play with identity and attention to recognize these subtler truths. Um, and the way that's, that's influenced me is a couple of ways. One was that when I was going through a very difficult time, there was a person that I was talking to who had been through this, Right at least once in a while I would get to talk to him and he would suggest something or do something that would just, it was so crucial in clarifying things and helping me reconcile these worlds and all those kinds of things. And he was from the, he was like a Hindu monk. So there that influences key. The other one is just the three minds framework, which is like what I talk about most of the time that it's roots are certainly in the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta, which is, from the Upanishads themselves of Hinduism, from the philosophical texts of Hinduism. So, you know, this interpretation is an outgrowth of that. So that's that tradition and that way of seeing things is very much still with me. Is there anything within your experience that could be said that it was something that was Hindu in nature? No, I would not say that. I think, I think all just like you would say that about Hinduism, I would say that about Christianity and, and Judaism. And I, was, I don't know much about other religions, but I do know enough people and I have read enough literature here and there to see that at the heart of it, that the people who have really experienced are talking about the same thing for sure. There's no doubt about it. And then the people around them might craft it in a different way. And then the injunctions and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, then it can become a power grab and everything is up for grabs at that point, you know? and the infighting and all this kind of stuff. But the people who have experienced it, remember, religion is a, is a human invention. Like, let's not, you know, we shouldn't forget that, that we have created religion out of the people we admire, the experiences we value, what we don't value, what we wish to see, what we want to avoid. Like we have created religion. So ultimately religion has to be a path to somewhere that is beyond religion. Uh, that's my, that's my opinion on that. I just wasn't sure if like you being in the blaze and yeah. that blaze could also 
possibly be some kind of Hindu imagery somewhere. That's all. I can't say that it's not possible, but I've talked to enough people and seen enough people who are atheist, who are agnostic, who are Christian, who have had similar experiences that I don't think that aspect was religion specific. All right. Do you believe that this experience and the ongoing way that you're experiencing life, has it changed the way you view Hinduism at all? No, it's just given me a fuller appreciation for what it was talking about. Okay. You mentioned the three minds framework. Can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah. So, you know, it it arose really out of a need for creating a bridge of understanding and, and a way to talk about this in a way that I thought may be helpful, especially to in a way that could be talked about perhaps in the same way to you know people who were religious minded or spiritual minded or philosophical or scientific. You know, I, I wanted I, in, rather than telling entirely different stories, uh, I wanted something that would touch all of this, and I want to ultimately bridge it with medicine. And so that's kind of the genesis of all of this. And what it essentially says is that what we call reality. First of all, the fundamental principle or the fundamental tenet is that consciousness is fundamental, that what we call physicality in the physical world and the mental world and spiritual world and any kind of world you can imagine or any kind of view, these are different perspectives in consciousness and specifically not in my consciousness or your consciousness, but that there is a fundamental consciousness that is here that is not dependent on any kind of fundamental, any, sorry, on any individual person or thing, but it is itself self-existing. And it is what self-modifies and differentiates as kind of the world of multiplicity and so on. So that's a fundamental assumption. And by the way, this three minds framework is basically a way of experiencing, a, a way of suggesting what may be happening and an invitation for people to kind of try on these lenses and and see if it works without having to contradict any prior knowledge. Okay, so the first mind view then, these are three different lenses within consciousness. The first mind view is the view of individual identity, right? The three minds are three lenses, three identities fundamentally, that what we are fundamentally is not just this body, not just this thing. And the first mind view is that I indeed am this thing. Right? That is the experience of the first mind configuration of identity. I am this thing. And this thing can be, I am this body. It can be, I am this personality. It can be, I am this human being. Right, And this, this sense of boundary, the sense of defining oneself as this particular thing, that is the characteristic of the first mind view. And what's interesting about this, what's powerful about this is that when this experience is there, when the sense of identity is configured in a way that tells us or is experienced as this is what I am, that same experience is reflected in the world. So what this first mind then perceives is a world of particular distinct things because it itself sees itself as this thing. It superimposes those boundaries on the world. And when you look out, you see a world of things. You see a laptop, you see a bed, you see a curtain, right? You see a tree, you see another body, and so on. And so the radical suggestion here is that these are interpretations and ways of seeing. 
the, the kind of world of multiplicity that we take as a given in our society, it's actually a way of seeing. It's not necessarily what is, right? And, and we already know this from science, right? We know that when you look at something with a telescope, you look at the same thing with your naked eyes, you look at the same thing with a microscope, it's going to appear completely different, three completely different ways, just based on the lens that you're using. And if you just look at everything with a telescope, you'll see, oh, the word is a blur, except for that stuff all the way over there. That stuff is clear. And of course, we know that's not true. That's a lens. So similarly, the very idea that there are multiple things out there, that there are all these things around you, including your body and all this, this is a way of seeing rather than a fundamental reality. And this is the nature of the mind in the first mind configuration. All right. So this is the first mind. The second mind is the view that what I am, right? It goes from being this particular thing, this body, this mind, whatever it is, it goes to something that is non-local and undifferentiated, meaning that boundary of identity that encapsulated the sense of me, that is seen through, that becomes transparent, translucent. That, that is more like a choice. That's more like a way of seeing rather than what is. And now the sense of identity is unbounded. It's no longer restricted to this. And again, the correlating suggestion, the correlating experience here is that along with this sense of unboundedness, so too the things of the world and the objects of the world that we saw, this too delocalizes and is perceived as fundamentally let's say of the nature of potential, of the nature of energy, nature of content. There's so many, there's no real word for it because we don't have fixed terminology for these things, right? So the sense of what I am, that I is now unbounded. So too, the universe is experienced as of the same nature of unboundedness. And so you can see the experience from the first mind to the second mind is radically different. It's a radically different way of feeling what is reality, feeling what I am, feeling what the world is, feeling what is possible, feeling ways to perceive, all of this, everything kind of changes. And it's also important to remember that these aren't two starkly, uh, you know, stark experiences. There's an entire range and ebb and flow of experience. And the range might be a little bit closer to one end, maybe a little closer to the end. It might span Sometimes there's a transition phase when it kind of spans and it can be up and down and, and very difficult. So these are ranges. So that's the first mind view and the second mind view. So if you can see, you can actually kind of contrast these or juxtapose these views where the first mind is a localized world of particularity and all this. And the second mind is a non-local, right? In spirituality, we might say oneness. It's oneness and it's recognizing what I am beyond all this kind of stuff. Now, what if we could, what if this juxtaposition wasn't there? Because even to juxtapose these two, we have to assume particularity. We have to assume distinctness and assume this kind of individuated objects, right? Otherwise, oneness only makes sense in the context of manyness. Otherwise, oneness doesn't mean anything, right? Unboundedness only makes sense when juxtaposed against boundedness. Otherwise, it really doesn't mean anything. So when this third mind is this mind which goes beyond this idea of multiplicity and oneness, right? So this to me is what I would describe as non-duality, like the actual essence and heart of non-duality, which a lot of people talk about now. It's a very popular subject. It's often talked about in terms of oneness because I think it's the most 
relatable level. But going beyond this juxtaposition, this dance of the one and the many is the non-dual, which I would say is what I'm referring to as consciousness itself, for lack of a better word. It is consciousness. And it is this consciousness, this third mind, which apparently does this dance of oneness and manyness. And so these three minds are three starkly, dramatically different ways of experiencing what is here and what we are and what this universe and world are. Hmm, thanks for sharing. And I should say, in by, by looking at these, you can, you can pull in descriptions from spirituality, from religion, from transpersonal experience, from psychedelics, from what we call mental health and mental illness, from, um, there are a couple more, from physics, right? So from sociology, all of those can now be filled into this framework of three identities based in the primacy of consciousness. Can you give us an example of applying this to one of those? Yeah. So in medicine, for example, right, that's, that's my field in healthcare. When we, everything that we do in medicine, right, in allopathic medicine, what I practice, emergency medicine, everything that we do starts with one thing from the perspective of, of, you know, figuring out what's going on, right? When you go to see a doctor, basically you're trying to figure out what's going on and, and help it get better. So how do we approach this as physicians, right? It's based on our model of the human being. That's where we start. So right now, our model of the human being is that a human being is a human body, right? Because anatomy is our model of the human being. You don't even have to go to medical school for that. That's just in our society in general, in, especially in academia, the model of the human being is human anatomy, right? When it comes to, when it comes to medical perspectives. And yet there's a big difference. I think almost anybody would agree. There's a big difference between a human being and a human body, right? We, we dissect human bodies, right? Cadavers to learn anatomy, right? We don't dissect people. We don't dissect human beings except in surgery to help them heal, but we're not just carving up human beings. No, we don't do that. We obviously know there's a big difference between a human being and a human body, right? Mind is not included in the model of the human body. And yet we all know that experiences of love and pain, love and suffering are probably the two most influential human experiences, but you won't find them in the body. You can dissect the body all you want, dissect the brain, you won't find love and you won't find pain, right? So there's a huge difference, discrepancy between these two. And what happens as we switch to a second mind view is we're going from this first mind definition of the human being, which is you are this thing, you are this body, you are this brain, you are this spinal cord, you are this vertebral column, you are this heart, this liver, this spleen, this lung, right? It's this, 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 this. Our, our very definition of the human being is based on boundary, right? Including this and excluding the rest. And it's very useful, obviously, for many things. But many of the problems that we're seeing, including many of the chronic diseases, many of the difficulty in, in uh, dealing with the experiences that we're having, right? Having uh, suffering that we frame in the lens of mental illness. Much of this is happening because we're squeezing a human being into a first mind view. And yet a human being is much more than that. And as we transition 
to a second mind view, we start to see that, whoa, there's much more to human anatomy than, than, just, than just this physical structure. At the very least, we have to start including mind as part of our fundamental anatomy. Not that the brain creates something called the mind, but mind is just as fundamental, at least as what we call the physical body, right? And along with that, then we start getting into other healing systems, whether it's yoga or Chinese medicine that have mapped human anatomy very differently with either chakras or meridians or different ways. And we don't generally include them. Why? Because we have taken a first mind view and we have not tuned our mind nor realized that by tuning the mind differently, different views of anatomy surface, right? It's not that entire cultures in, for example, India and China just were hallucinating or didn't see things right. It's that their minds were tuned differently. And so they noticed different aspects of anatomy and physiology. So moving to a second mind view in medicine means defining the human being more completely. And to me, that means five bodies, the physical body, the mental body, the energetic body, the informational body, and then consciousness as fundamental with the deepest layer consciousness differentiating as these other four layers. So this is a simple way that in medicine, we would see the human being more completely and would lead to, I think, much more effective diagnosis and healing. Do you think that if you just change someone's consciousness or more simply the way they think that there can be a lot of healing in their physical body from that? That's a tricky question. I'm going to say yes and no in the sense that I wouldn't say that just changing thinking can change things unless a change in thinking Number one, it has to it has to work for that person, right? This isn't like a, a forced idea that oh, think differently and everything's because if we're thinking in one way, but everything else is going in another way, right? We can think one thing, but our core belief can be something else, right? We can think one thing, but our actions can be in another direction. So I think it's more like the alignment of everything, right? So our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, you know, when when all of these start to align, then we start to see changes. Now, it can be if, if thought is like one of the things that we're really hung up on, right? Like, I just, not, I just don't get this. I tried this. It's not working. I don't know what it is. And then we shift a thought. Then for that kind of person, it may make a big difference because that was the one big hang up. But I think just like with anything else, uh, it, it takes an entire alignment to see kind of significant or whole changes because when thought is dissected out as something separate, it, it might not, it might not kind of diffuse through the entire human system to see those changes. As an emergency room physician, have you encountered anybody who had come back from being dead? And if so, you probably have, has any of them told you that, Hey, I just was somewhere else or I was with God or, you know, something like that, like a near death experience in the ER. I have not experienced anybody telling me that. Certainly there are many people who are, let's say, having CPR, right? They lost a pulse. They're not breathing. And so the body is not functioning and we're doing CPR and, and doing whatever else we can to resuscitate the body. And in some cases they come back. Um, but in most of those cases, they are um, under mechanical ventilation, right? Or they're if if they're starting to move and talk, we often sedate them because they're in such critical situations. 
you know, not if they're talking, but if they're start to get a pulse back, mm. right? They're still, their waking consciousness is usually not online yet, right? So they're usually on mechanical ventilation and sedation. It's very rare when, a, where a person, you do CPR and everything, and then they come back completely conscious and awake and are talking, right? That, that usually happens later in the hospital stay. Like they're, they're on mechanical ventilation, they're sedated and over the course of some time, they'll come off of that and wake up and then they may relate their events. I don't see that because I'm still in the ER. Right. Makes sense. Do you think that any of the medications that people are on when they're in a coma, is it possible that those could cause an NDE-like effect? Well, I think any medication, any substance that takes a person into layers of the mind that they haven't visited, you know, can cause this, what we're calling, you know, mystical type experience. Um, And so I think any sedative could do it, you know, including the people, the sedatives people take, including alcohol, I think could do it. Now, I don't think it's that the drug is causing it, right? Certain, some psychedelics, for example, are known to do it, right? But it's, it's by, either taking someone to a different region of the mind or opening up certain windows in the mind that haven't been opened before. So I certainly think that many different drugs could do it. Psychedelics typically are most associated, I think, with actually having that kind of effect. So are you saying like if someone's taking DMT, they're opening their mind and experiencing something different? Or do you think it's possible that their consciousness can leave their body due to the DMT and go experience some other realm and come back or both, both, both. Yeah. They're both, they're both kind of different ways of describing the same thing to me, like opening the mind, you know, uh, what I mean is simply opening up new pathways in this and whatever this is Mm -hmm. that I'm calling consciousness. um, We're simply opening up new hallways, new access points and, you know, Anything can happen in the sense that, yes, the sense of identity can leave the body. Can It's it's basically, in that sense, one thing from a second mind perspective, right? So, so space is not really an issue and time is not really an issue from that perspective. All right. I'm thinking we're not on the same page. When you say mind, do you also mean consciousness? Yes. From the second mind is this undifferentiated consciousness. The first mind is the local mind that we usually think of as mind, like my mind or your mind. Uh, so I use mind in different ways and that's why the three minds framework describes mind in three different ways. So sometimes I do switch in terms of how I use it. Okay. I saw a video of you somewhere, I believe when you were talking about dreams. So I wanted to ask you this about dreams. Do you think that the brain is capable of creating people that we've never seen before in our dreams? Or do you think that we're actually seeing other people that we've, you know, from other experiences or whatever. Okay. So we're going to go speculative here from the perspective of the second mind, you know, all in a sense, space and time goes out the window. So all things, all experiences are available in my view anywhere at any time. Right. So what Jeff experiences can be anything that has been experienced anywhere at any time and not just on earth and not just 
within the last million years or whatever it is. Even this, even past, present, future, the timeline is no longer applicable because that is still from a first mind perspective when we fix a point of identity and fix things and then sequentially move attention, this is where the sense of time comes from, right? So can we experience things we haven't experienced? Yes, let me put it this way. The first mind can experience things that this first mind has not experienced, but it, it would be things that have been present in the purview of the second mind. Does that make sense? So it might be outside my bubble of awareness. And so it might seem new to me, but that doesn't mean it's it's fundamentally new or it has not existed or happened. What do you think our purpose is in this lifetime or in any lifetime? I think the purpose of life is to be yourself. You know, I I know a lot of people will say, you know, yes, find yourself or discover yourself or, you know, to contribute to humanity. Uh, these can all, all be like specific purposes um, in a sense, like in a sense for me, I would say uh, at one level, my purpose is to communicate, right? Like I can't stop talking and communicating and writing about it and answering questions. And that seems to be the purpose. But really, if I look at what that is, it's really me being myself, right? It's in, in being myself, these are the activities that kind of naturally come out. And it's, it's not happening because somebody has told me to do it or because, you know, I, uh, there's some pressure on me to do it. In fact, many times it's difficult to do it because of commitments, other commitments that have to be done. But if I'm, when I'm most myself, I tend to communicate, right? So that's how I would describe it. Uh, now, that process, I think, of coming to being oneself is one of kind of discovering my motivations, you know, why am I doing these things? What are my assumptions? And kind of working through all that, how much of this is what other people's beliefs are that have put into the mind. And so the mind is running other people's programming, so to speak, as opposed to what really I'm about, taking that time and taking that space to kind of clear out. I think all of that can be talked about as purpose, like to know yourself, to discover yourself, but all of that, I think, is just, it's its life. It's just learning about life. And ultimately, I think a person comes to that sense of like clarity and then the kind of action that happens automatically. So to me, being oneself really is the purpose. And that unlocks, if, if that is kind of the goal in a sense, everything else will be unlocked in service of that. Do you believe in reincarnation? And if not, what do you think we do after we leave this body? So reincarnation to me is simply when the first mind takes on a different kind of vehicle for expression as, as just it. You know, the whole idea of birth and death exists from the first mind view. From the second mind view, there is no birth or death. There are only different kinds of expression. And so what we call reincarnation from the first mind perspective would be like going from the dining room to the kitchen from a second mind perspective, right? And you're just kind of going from one frame of experience to another. So in that sense, I wouldn't even say I, I believe in reincarnation. Like this is just what I see. This is my world and the way I experience things is that there are different kinds of expressions that, you know, birth and death basically are the walls of a kind of experience. Okay. So I, I, I get that. 
I'm going to bring it back to the first person mind, I think. So if you come back again as a new being, you know, you know, whether you're going to the dining room or to the kitchen, you're coming back as a new being. Do you think we come with the purpose, like you said before, of just expressing ourselves, Or do you think that there's like another purpose behind beyond that? I think ex- expressing oneself is the act of living, hmm. right? Like to live is to express. Otherwise there's, there's no, there's no living. Right. So I guess, does that answer the question? Just seeing yeah, it that way? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I think so. I was just saying, I was wondering if there was a secondary, like it's common to hear people say, okay, well I came, you know, I've came this lifetime to learn something. There's something I need to yeah. experience. There's something that I need to learn and that's why yeah. I'm here. And and yeah. that's why I came back because I haven't yeah. finished learning whatever I needed to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally true. That's, that's exactly right. And that's, that's like the, that would be that person kind of being themselves that I would say, right. It, it, what they, the feeling of needing to learn something will be there strongly for some people, for others, it won't be. And for each person, it'll be them kind of being themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And even for people who feel like there is something I have to learn, that thing will obviously be very different for different kinds of people. And again, in both of those cases, those people would still be being themselves. So the way we express the things we do, the, the things that we're motivated towards, Yes, they're all kind of part of like completing the lifetime in a sense. So yes, that that also is what I would say is like the the expressed purpose or the kind of um, the interpreted purpose. The the deepest part of which is really just being oneself, and then all that stuff kind of you know happens. And I guess also that's why you can say that every person who has an NDE, they're all unique to the person. So. You know, yeah. that's why they're, they're expressing and or experiencing everything in their own way. Right. And from what I've learned is that, that many of these have very similar characteristics, especially in the, in the neighborhood of near-death-like experiences. They have very similar characteristics. Um, there, you know, there's some differences, but very easily you can see broad themes that are the same. All right, Doc, I have a lot of questions, but I'm not going to be able to get to them because I've run out of time. But before I go, I want to mention a few things about you. One is you're the author of Michelangelo's Medicine and another book called Is This a Dream? Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Those two books right behind me over there, actually. They're right there. They're on, you can get those on Amazon? Yes. Yes. And, uh, or can you get them on your own website? Or is it just yes? If you go to the website, then it it links to the two books as well. Yes. All right. What is your website called? It's my name. It's anupkumar.com. A N O O P K U M A R.com. All right. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions. Are you good with that? And if so, how do they reach out to you? The best way is through the website. If you go to the website, there's a contact at the bottom. And you can simply submit a contact with questions or follow-ups, and I'm glad to do that. All right, great. Well, besides still working as a ER doc, you've got the books. Do you have anything else that you're working on that you want us to know about? So I'm developing a YouTube channel. It's still early in the works, um, but you can find videos there. You can also find a lot of videos on the website. Um, and then it's really the main thing is talking about this three minds framework and it's 
applications really, because it's not really just about the framework, but if we can apply it to kind of experience, you know, to see the breadth of experience differently and also for changes in medicine and how we see it's really big in terms of how we can see what we call mental illness and mental health, you know, that's really important. So if anybody's interested in, um, you know, talking about those or, or having talks to elucidate some of these ideas, that's really what I'm doing now. In one of your books, do you go over the three minds in more depth? I don't actually. So that it, it became after I wrote the second book, which was, is this a dream? I think I began to mention it there because that's when it really became apparent to me that I really need some kind of translating framework to be able to talk about this consistently in a way that is not too confusing. You know, you can, you can kind of say, give the same framework over and over. So it becomes clear rather than using multiple different ways. So that has not become its own book yet. Although I am working on a book right now called second mind managing, Mm -hmm. which is takes a different perspective on management, right. And like Mm -hmm. in business and just managing in general, and it just takes it kind of defines what we're doing all the time as managing in a sense, kind of like making decisions and, and figuring out how we want to approach things. And so this will talk at least briefly, we'll touch on the three minds framework. Um, but I think the other way, if you want to get the, get the details, you can go to the website, anupkumar.com. And if you scroll down, there is, there is a, a little blurb about the three minds and then a link that says, click here for more details. And that'll take you to a document, which really goes into it in much more detail um, along with examples and talks about the philosophy and, and I mean, many different angles on it. So it can start to kind of become more clear. All right. Well, before we finish up here, can you give us one last positive message? There's much more in life to experience than, you know, what we're taught in the typical educational system and standard messaging in society. And each person, regardless of what has happened regardless of who we are, what our background is, regardless of what we have believed or we're taught to believe, each person has all the tools necessary to open the doors to experience and question and discover for themselves. All right. Thank you for that message. And Dr. Kumar, thank you so much again for being my guest. I really appreciate you. And when you get the new book out, be sure to come back so we can talk about it. All right, I'll do that. All right, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Jeff, you too. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.